Well, we are in 1 Peter chapter 5. We're at the end of the letter. Started way back in September, and we're actually going to finish something this year. Isn't that great? Don't you like completing things? 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 10 through 14. These are Peter's concluding remarks. Uh, he offers some final reminders. Uh, the title of the whole series has been Living in the Real World. And the title for this message is, In the End, What Needs to be Said? What does is, what is Peter say at the end? It's kind of like a last goodbye. I uh, left home many times when I was young throughout my adult years, went off to study in the States, then went to Brazil as a missionary. And so my parents would often say things to me, you know, in those final moments, things like, uh, we really love you, Ray. Unbelievable, right, that they would love me. And uh, don't forget to call. Sometimes an important question like, did you remember your toothbrush? <laughs> when I was younger, an even more important question like, what's going to guide you as you go? What do you have as your compass? What guides us? In the 1800s, for example, during the time of the Underground Railroad, slaves would journey north to Canada looking at the North Star. It was a sure Guide. No matter where they found themselves geographically, they could look at the North Star. They could, you know, reorient themselves. It wasn't something that was based on their feelings, on their intuition, on their life experience. It was a sure and steady guide, a clear objective marker. If we live life today without a compass, life can be really frustrating. We will experience ever-increasing levels of anxiety. For some, it will actually lead to despair. So in a world of, of, of uh, shifting sands, of changing circumstances, what do we have as a sure compass that guides us through life? Do we have one? What does Peter say at the end of his letter? What are his final words to the churches in Asia Minor? Let's read 1 Peter chapter 5, beginning in verse 10. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be dominion forever and ever. Amen. By Silvanus, a faithful brother as I regard him, I have written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. She who is at Babylon, who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings, and so does Mark, my son. Greet one another with the kiss of love. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. Peter, he writes these words, of course, very aware of the context of the churches in Asia Minor. Uh, even in chapter 5, he talks about them you know, needing to cast all of their anxieties on God. He says, humble yourselves before God, humble yourselves before one another, and take all of your anxieties and cast them on God because he really cares for you. How are we doing in that regard? How are we doing with our, our work and our finances and our family relationships and our future? Are we being enabled by the Holy Spirit to just cast everything on God because he really, really cares for us. Last weekend, Pastor Willie was preaching on verses 8 and 9, which talk about an enemy, our enemy, the devil, who prowls, wanting to devour us. And we can stand firm, alert, clear-minded. So Peter, aware of all of this, knowing that we have opposition, knowing that we suffer, says, 
And after you have suffered a little while, when we suffer, it doesn't feel like a little while. I love what Francis Chan does here sometimes. He strings out a long, long rope and says, hey, that's eternity. And our suffering, and he ties a little tape around the rope and says, this is our life here on earth. It is very, very short. And we have all of that before us. It's important to live with that perspective. And after you have suffered just a little while, suffering is inevitable. We'll go through difficulties in this life. We'll face disappointments. I imagine many of you were disappointed by the recent Supreme Court of Canada decision in relation to Trinity Western's desire to open a law school. I was saddened by the decision. Freedom of sexual expression was placed above freedom of religion. Chris Selly, a journalist writing in the National Post, wrote this, I quote, The implications of the ruling are potentially massive. Today, many religious schools receive public money to teach elementary and secondary students. Yet the highest court in the land has decided it is fine for a government actor to discriminate against growing men and women who want to assemble freely in an entirely private religious institution to learn the law. It did so in a decision that is sloppily argued and full of contradictions. Notably, it credits the Law Society's quest for a diverse legal profession without ever considering that an evangelical Christian law school would obviously contribute to that goal. And he ends with this, Canadian courts have long protected religious practices they believe to be sincerely held, not necessarily essential or commanded by Scripture. The majority here turned that on its head. So it's disheartening. The sloppily argued case But we must remember that the decision, no matter how sobering, does not alter God's eternal purposes. No matter how difficult our path may be in this life due to judicial action, political pressure, family opposition, spiritual oppression, or anything else, no matter how intense our suffering Due to the weight of our anxieties, our suffering in this life pales in comparison to eternal glory. How can we say that with such conviction? Well, verse 10. Verse 10. When you uh, read this in the original, what it actually says is, this is the way it begins, but the God of all grace. So Peter walks through the reality of the churches in Asia Minor. They are going through difficulties. They do suffer. They do face the opposition of the devil himself, but the God of all grace. And he changes everything. As we navigate through life, we don't set our compass on the Supreme Court of Canada. We don't set our compass on the political establishment. We don't set our compass on the political commentary of our media outlets. We don't set our compass on our own anxieties. Our compass is set on the God of all grace who rules over all things. He is the possessor of grace. He is the giver of grace. He is the author of the entire gospel story. So as Peter wraps up this letter... In a sense, he goes back to the themes with which he began the letter. He talks about election and grace, big themes, peace, the power of God. And in summary, he says, hey, our whole story from beginning to end depends on the God of all grace. And we have been called by God. We need to know who called us. 
Back in chapter 1, he said, we were chosen. We were chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. We were called in Christ. We were caused to be born again to a living hope. Called to an intimate relationship with Jesus. Peter writes in chapter 1, even though we don't see him, we love him. Our faith in him is real. Called to be holy as God is holy in our day. Called to be members of a, a chosen race. God's very own treasured possession. We've learned to sing Glorious Day. If you're a follower of Jesus, if you attend Willingdon, you've learned to sing Glorious Day. You called my name, and I ran out of that grave, out of the darkness, into your glorious day. And so we have that song in our hearts. We sing it. The problem is, many around us are not singing the same tune. We are Easter people in a Good Friday world. And so in a Good Friday world, we need to remember who called us, who started this whole thing, who's writing the story. We've been called to follow in Jesus' footsteps in our day, to share in his sufferings, called to speak, to serve, to have words of grace in our day, called to an inheritance that's imperishable, unfading, undefiled. It's kept there in heaven for us, Peter writes called to his eternal glory in Christ, and all the while, by God's power, being sustained, being guarded, Peter writes in chapter 1, being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. So we live our lives with our, our compass set on that God, the God of all grace, the only God. We rest in his goodness, in his power, in his sovereignty. We trust him to continue to work in our day. We live in light of the gospel story that God is writing. And if you are not a follower of Jesus, know that the Holy Spirit invites you to enter into that story. Jesus calls you by name to leave your grave. And if you are a follower of Jesus, then it is your privilege to share that story with people in Canada in this day. And the reality is that fewer and fewer people in this nation know the story. They may know the name Jesus, but they have no idea what he has done for them. The story began with God. It's been his work from the beginning. He called us. And then Peter writes in verse 10, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. Those four words, restore, confirm, strengthen, establish, they kind of serve as a crescendo. Peter's talking about something that's going to be fully realized, completed at Christ's return. Our whole story from beginning to end depends on the God of all grace. We were called by him. We will be completed by him. That is so encouraging. The God of all grace will himself restore you, Peter writes. That word restore, it means to, uh, to mend, uh, to put things back together, to, to make whole the word was used for the setting of broken bones. There's an evangelist uh, from England. He's actually Greek, but of English nationality. And he often hears people saying that believing in God is a crutch. And this is the way he responds. Then I hope you break your legs. <laughs> if you broke both your legs, wouldn't you appreciate the value of a wheelchair? And if you broke one of your legs, wouldn't you appreciate a crutch? You see, I'm a broken person. 
and so are you. I've never met a person who isn't broken, and I'm so pleased I can lean on Jesus while he's putting me back together again. That's the gospel. Jesus is restoring us. We experience that restoration in this life. And at Christ's return, we will be made completely whole. Suffering will be over. He says, the God of all grace will himself confirm you. That word confirm means to cause you to be firm in your faith, to be unchanging. We become more firm in our faith as we walk with Jesus. Peter writes, even though we have not seen him, we love him, confirmed. At Christ's return, faith will become sight. We'll see Jesus as he is, as Paul writes. We will have full certainty. The God of all grace will himself strengthen you. He'll make you strong. He'll empower you. So the devil may prowl like a lion. He may roar. But if you are in Jesus, then the lion of the tribe of Judah is at work in your life. And Jesus has authority over all things. No need to fear. The God of all grace will himself establish you, provide a a solid foundation for you. That word, it it reminds us of what Peter wrote in chapter 2, that God is building a spiritual house, and the cornerstone of that house is none other than Jesus himself, and we are living stones in that house, and we have a solid foundation as sure as bedrock in Jesus. So the things that he writes about are certainly for the future. We will be completed by God but they are experienced in the here and now. Peter writes these things. Uh, Matthew chapter 4. Jesus calls him. He was a fisherman. Jesus calls him to follow. Peter sees Jesus do so many different things. Uh, Jesus heals his mother-in-law. He then sees Jesus calm a storm. And the question I have in my mind is, uh, so Jesus, what was harder, to heal the mother-in-law or to calm the storm? Thank you for laughing, Pastor Ron. (laughs) More seriously, Peter, he follows Jesus. He sees God at work. In Matthew chapter 16, the disciples are in Caesarea Philippi. And uh, Jesus asks them, well, who do you say that I am? And Peter is the first one to say, "You, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus responds by saying, the Father revealed that to you, Peter, and you're a rock. And on this confession, I'm going to build my church. Wow, what a moment. And then, a little later, Jesus is in his moment of greatest need. He calls his disciples to be faithful, to pray. He's arrested. He goes to trial. And Peter denies him three times. And of course, the rooster crows and Peter is broken. But Jesus The God of all grace comes to restore him on the shores of the Sea of Galilee. And I saw something in the scriptures this week that I hadn't seen before. In Luke chapter 22, verse 31, we read the following. Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you. Jesus said this before Peter denied him. Demanded to have you that he might sift you like weak, but I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. So here, years later, Peter is writing this letter to the churches in Asia Minor, and he is strengthening them in their faith. He's reminding them of the gospel story. 
He's reminding them that they were called, that they have been confirmed, that they will be strengthened, that they will be completed by God, established by him. Peter has had that experience. And he believes with all his heart that God will complete his work in him. So he ends with worship. Verse 11, to him be the dominion forever and ever. We may feel threatened in our day. We may feel somewhat vulnerable. We may wonder what the future may hold. But the God of all grace, his kingdom is forever and ever. Peter doesn't wish for his reign. He rejoices in it. Sing that song as you walk through your week. To him be the dominion forever and ever. God is sovereign. He is reigning. Our whole story from beginning to end depends on the God of all grace. We have been called by him. We are, will be completed by him. We are covered by him. He's our compass. And then Peter writes this, verse 12. By Silvanus, a faithful brother as I regard him, I have written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. Silvanus, uh, that's the Latinized form of the name Silas, and so Silas appears in the Scriptures. He is a companion of Paul in Asia Minor. This letter was uh, carried by him. He was probably the courier of the letter. He may have been the one that wrote down what Peter was saying, inspired by the Holy Spirit, in light of who God is, we're invited here by the Holy Spirit to stand committed to the true grace of God. Stand firm in the true grace. If Peter is writing about true grace, there must be false grace. Here's an example of false grace in our day. One of the most common things to be heard is all religions lead to God. Everything in the end takes us to the same Place. And it sounds so appealing, so, so politically correct in our day. But if we just begin to ask some questions of those who make this assertion, we find that it's empty. What about those religions that would, would encourage us to curse other people? What about them? What about those religions that would encourage a person to take the lives of others so that he or she might go straight to heaven? What about that? What about those religions that deny the very existence of God? What about those religions that believe in millions of gods and really you just create your own religious path? If we just begin to think about that assertion, we realize that it is completely empty. We really do not want to live in a world where all religions lead to God, where everyone just does what is right in his or her own eyes. That is not a pretty world. So Peter exhorts the disciples he writes to to stand firm in the true grace of God, the grace centered in Jesus. He's talked about this throughout the letter. Here's some examples. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 18. You were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ. And then in verse 21, so that your faith and hope are in God. Chapter 2, verse 24, by his wounds you have been healed. You were straying like sheep, but now have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. The gospel story, the gospel message, the true grace of God is centered in Jesus. Leonardo da Vinci, he painted 
a painting called, well, he named it Salvatore Mundi. He painted it around 1500. And uh, that painting found its way into the collections of the British royal family. Kicked around there for a while. Uh, it was eventually sold to an American in 1958. Sold for 80, 45 pounds, sorry, 45 pounds. That's 80 Canadian dollars. At that time, it was considered to be a copy of the original, a kind of bad copy. Uh, for 50 years, it kicked around uh, the United States. In 2005, a restoration expert in New York, she started to restore that painting. And as she restored it, she discovered that it actually was the original. So in 2017, after restoration, that painting went on sale at Christie's auction, and it sold for, guess how much? $450 million. Oh, I wish I would have bought it when it was worth 80. $450 million. The most expensive painting ever sold. Sold to a Saudi prince now in a museum in Abu Dhabi. Well, the gospel of true grace teaches us that we were bought back, that we were ransomed by the blood of the Son of God, Jesus himself. Not after restoration. <laughs> when we were worthless, when we were discarded, when we were considered not worth a penny, when we were broken, when we were in that state, God bought us back through the death of his very own son because he loved us. That is the true grace of God. And it's in that true grace that we must stand. The true grace centered in Jesus on the story he has written and is writing, not on our own fabricated story. We live in a world today where we think that we can rewrite our story rewrite history, invent our own religious paths. We live in the world of lies. We cannot base our lives on our best religious efforts. We must follow the compass of the true God, the God of all grace. We've been called to follow in Jesus' steps, in life, to death, all the way to glory. Amen? So it's in the true grace of God that we stand. And you know what? The world needs to hear about that grace. People are living around us don't actually know about that grace. Peter wrote his letter from Babylon. Babylon refers to Rome throughout Scripture from Genesis to Revelation. Uh, Babylon is the center of power opposed to God and his people. He writes from Babylon. It appears in Peter's day that Rome rules. Rome allows no threats to its glory. All the might of Rome stands against the infant, fledgling church. How will it survive? Well, it depends on the God of all grace. It's founded on the resurrected, living Christ. And even though it may suffer, even though the devil may roar, God reigns eternally. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Ray Penning's He's the executive vice president of the faith-based think tank, Cardis. He wrote this in the National Post. Ultimately, 
The Trinity Western decision means the deep pluralism that has characterized Canadian society since the Quebec Act of 1774. The ability to live side by side accepting the reality of difference has become a part of our past. Even the diversity that has been celebrated so exuberantly for the past two decades has now become a monoculture where sexual identity thrives and all other social considerations such as religious faith fall behind. Trinity Western's loss, then, is Canada's loss as well. We should all prepare ourselves for the sting of one's basic freedoms being increasingly denied. Well, that is sobering. And it's good to think about what he has written and be ready for whatever may come in our day. We also need to remember that verses were engraved in the Peace Tower in Ottawa in 1921. Verses like Psalm 72, verse 8, over the east window, he shall have dominion also from sea to sea. Over the south window, Psalm 72, verse 1, give the king thy judgment, O God, and thy righteousness unto the king's son. And over the west window, where there is no vision, the people perish, Proverbs 29, verse 18. This is a day when vision is perishing, unfortunately, in our land, and it is a day for renewed vision for the kingdom of God. It's not a day to despair. It's a day to stand firm in the true grace of God. So when we sing the national anthem, hey, O Canada, we stand on guard for thee. God, keep our land glorious and free. O Canada, we stand on guard for thee. O Canada, we stand on guard for thee. When we sing those words, let's remember that we stand on guard for this nation, standing in the gap, praying for Canada, praying for revival in this nation, praying that the kingdom of God would come. This is not a time to lie down. It's a time to stand. Hand up. So this summer, let's establish ourselves in the true grace. Let's read the scriptures. We read 1 Peter. Pray for God's vision for this country. Pray for God to raise up a new generation of Christ followers, committed to him, committed to his kingdom. Worship with Peter. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Peter writes in verse 13, by Silvanus, a faithful, sorry, verse 13, she who is at Babylon, who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings, and so does Mark, my son. Greet one another with the kiss of love. She who is at Babylon, it refers to the church in Rome. Rome, Rome is sending greetings. Church in Rome has been chosen just as the churches in Asia Minor have been chosen by Jesus. They send greetings. Uh, Peter encourages the, the members of the churches in Asia Minor to greet one another with the kiss of love. So during our next greeting time next weekend, Pastor Ron is going to encourage you to kiss each other with the kiss of love. Church is going to be so full next weekend. Maybe it'll be empty. What is Peter saying? Well, the kiss of love was the standard family greeting in the ancient world, and in many parts of the world continues to be the affectionate form of greeting. But what he's essentially saying is communicate love to one another, whether it be a handshake or a nod or a bow or a look in the eye, a kiss, if that's appropriate for you, communicate to one another that you love one another. In light of who God is, we're invited to walk with the community of grace. Why? Because we need it. <laughs> in this day, more than ever before, we need it in Canada. 
Mark sends greetings. It's interesting that Peter should mention Mark. Peter knew Mark really well. Uh, the early church in Jerusalem met in the home of Mark's mother. must have been a large home. The church gathered there. When Peter was released from prison by an angel, he went to Mark's home. So Mark is well known by Peter. Uh, Peter refers to him as a, a son. Probably he's saying, my disciple, Mark. Tradition tells us that Mark wrote his gospel being guided by Peter. Now this Mark... He went on a missionary journey with Paul and Barnabas, and he abandoned them. Paul was very disappointed by what Mark had done, didn't want to take him on another journey, but Barnabas was there to encourage Mark. Mark needed his brothers and sisters to continue on the journey. He needed the encouragement, the love of the community of grace to remain firm, to persevere. We all do. We all need to be encouraged by the community of grace. So this summer, spend some time with some friends that follow Jesus. Go on a hike. Share a picnic. Invite someone to join you that's new to Willingdon. Share life. Remind each other of your common compass, the God of all grace. And then Peter ends with the blessing. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. No matter what the circumstance, no matter what happens in our day or in the future, we can walk in the peace of God. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. If we're in Jesus, we have been reconciled with God. We have peace with God. We have the peace of the Holy Spirit in our hearts, inner peace. We can cast all of our anxieties on him because he cares for us. Jesus dwells in us, makes our burden light. And so in light of who God is, we are invited to walk within the reality of his calm. Now here's an important point. It is for those in Christ. If you're not a follower of Jesus, Jesus calls your name. He invites you by the Holy Spirit to know him, to experience this peace. If you've never surrendered your life to Jesus, you walk separated from God. You walk independently of God. You follow your own way, but God invites you to follow the way of Jesus. God invites you to know him, the true and living God. He invites you to experience forgiveness of sin. Often we walk under the weight of shame. I was speaking with a woman last night who had just surrendered her life to Jesus. She asked the question, how can I receive the Holy Spirit? What do I need to do? Well, you don't have to do anything if you've surrendered your life to Jesus. The Holy Spirit is a gift. God doesn't want anyone to spend eternity apart from him. Peter wrote these words in his second letter, 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 8. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some of you count slowness, but he is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. God's desire for you is that you humble yourself under his mighty hand and receive salvation today. 
We know where we are today. We don't know where we will be tomorrow. The moment is now. Give your life to Jesus. He gave his life for you. Let's stand for prayer. So if you have never surrendered your life to Jesus, never received him as Savior and Lord, you've never repented, you've never turned from your own way to Jesus, and you're here needing forgiveness of sin, you're asking God for the gift of eternal life, then pray this prayer together with me, and it'll be on the screen you can follow. Pray it from your heart. God, I desire to know you personally. Please forgive me for leading my own life and and rejecting your love. Thank you, Jesus, for dying on the cross and paying the price for all my sin. I ask you to forgive my sins. Jesus, lead me from this day forward. Fill me with your spirit. Set me free. Make me into the kind of person you created me to be. Thank you, God, for adopting me into your family and gifting me with eternal life. In Jesus' name, amen. If you prayed that prayer, you can come forward to talk to me. Go to the Welcome Center. We want to encourage you in your walk with Jesus. And now a prayer for all of my brothers and sisters. Lord, I thank you that you've called us to yourself. Thank you that we can walk together as family, as your people. Thank you that you have not left us alone. Thank you that you have sent your Holy Spirit to abide in us. Oh God, it's so good to be reminded that you are the one that's writing this story. You called us. You will complete your work in us. Oh God, it's so good to know that you're faithful when we fail. Thank you, Lord, that you cover us. Lord, may we remain committed to your true grace. May we share this message of your true grace in Jesus with those we meet this week. Oh God, empower us by your Spirit. May we launch out in faith. Thank you for your goodness. Thank you for this day. Thank you for the gift of life. And now may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with us all. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. God bless you. Have a great week.